You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Pain.tv slash gold. I am Dustin Gold, and you are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. All right, folks, two more of these, and I'm going through these as... You know, we're picking up a lot of nuggets, and again, I'm handling this mini-series as if I'm doing this for the first time, and so I want to introduce you to all this information and knowledge on Saul Linsky, and then together we're going to start going through the documentaries, and we're going to start to dissect and figure out what his purpose was. Was he just a grifter? Was he an opportunist? Was his job to lock the poor folks in America into uh, eternal poverty uh, was his job to erode culture was his job to screw up and uh, brainwash generations to come into this idea of progressivism or was he a good guy who thought he was doing good and fighting against the bad guy fighting against the man and he just failed in so many ways and set into motion basically a mental disease as i will get into in future episodes so to me this is all very interesting folks all right we're going to look at fight that's uh fight like fight with your fists rochester new york and this will come up in a documentary we're going to watch as well it says in the 1960s alinsky focused through the iaf on the training of community organizers The IAF assisted black community organizing groups in Kansas City and Buffalo and the community service organization of Mexican-Americans in California, training, among others, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. Alinsky's, quote, major battle, end quote, followed the 1964 Rochester race riot. Alinsky viewed Rochester, New York, as a, quote, classic company town, end quote, owned by... Uh, own, uh, quote, lock, stock, and barrel, end quote, by Eastman Kodak. If you guys remember Eastman Kodak, film company, right? Film, rolls of film, Kodak film. Casually exploited by Kodak, whose only contribution to race relations, Alinsky quipped, was, quote, the invention of color film, <laughs> end quote. That's a good line. And by other local businesses, most African-Americans held low-pay and low-skilled jobs, and lived in substandard housing in the wake of the riots, the Rochester area churches, together with black civil rights leaders, invited Alinsky and the IAF to help the community organize. With the Reverend Franklin Florence, who had been close to Malcolm X, they established Fight, Freedom, Integration, God, Honor Today, to bring community pressure on Kodak to open up employment and city governance. Concluding that picketing and boycotts would not work, Fight began to think of some, quote, far-out tactics along the lines of our O'Hare sit-in, end quote. Well, it wasn't a sit-in, folks. It was a a shit-in. It was the O'Hare shit-in. This included a, quote, fart-in, end quote, at the Rochester uh, uh, Philharmonic Kodak's, quote, cultural jewel, end quote. It was a proposal Alinsky considered, quote, absurd rather than juvenile, but isn't much of life kind of a theater of the absurd, end quote. No tactic that might work was 
and uh, quote, frivolous, end quote. In the end, in following a disruption of its annual stockholders convention, assisted by Unitarians and other assigning fight their proxies, uh, Alinsky had called on them to, quote, put your stock where your sermons are, end quote. Kodak recognized fight as a broad-based community organization and committed through a recruitment and training program to black employment. Rochester was to be the last African-American community that Alinsky would help organize through his own intervention. Now, interesting thing. So I believe uh, we'll see it in a documentary. They um uh, handed out cans of beans and all these black folks ate all these cans of beans and the idea is they were going to go in there and just start farting i i mean juvenile but highly effective for the time the other thing he was doing with these stock proxies was he was getting the uh folks that own stock in eastman kodak to basically assign uh, the stock over to him to allow him to get a seat on the board at Kodak. Well, we'll get into that. It's in a speech he gave at a Catholic church. Uh, I thought it was highly effective for its time, very creative. And so um, that's essentially the method that BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street use now to take over companies, but Alinsky was doing it at a grassroots level. Now, this guy may com- be completely evil, completely evil ladies and gentlemen by the time we're done i think we're going to see some of that but but i've got to laugh at this because i can't go through an entire uh, series just being so angry and everything that alinsky does i'll be sitting here yelling about it how dare he that's despicable when a lot of these are tactics that i myself would uh, utilize uh last one here is the community action in the federal war of poverty while in Rochester, Alinsky had been employed four days a month at the federally funded Community Action Training Center at Syracuse University. The 1964 Economic Opportunity Act, passed as part of Lyndon B. Johnson's War on Poverty, committed the federal government to promoting the, quote, maximum feasible participation, end quote, of targeted communities in the design and delivery of anti-poverty programs. This appeared to acknowledge what Alinsky insisted was the key to social and economic deprivation. Quote, political poverty, end quote. Poverty means not only lacking money, but also lacking power. When poverty and the lack of power bar you from equal protection, equal equity in the courts, and equal participation in the economic and social life of your society, then you are poor. An anti-poverty program must recognize that its program has to do something about not only economic poverty, but also political poverty. That's Alinsky speaking. Goes on to say, Alinsky was skeptical of community action program, it's called CAP, funding under the act, doing more than provide relief for the, quote, welfare industry, end quote. Quote, the use of poverty funds to absorb staff salaries and operating costs by changing the title of programs and pulling a new poverty label here and there is an old device, end quote. If it was to achieve more than this, there had to be meaningful representation of the poor, quote, through their own organized power, end quote. In practice, this would mean that the federal sponsor for community action, the Office of Economic Opportunity, the OEO, should bypass city halls and either fund existing militant organizations such as Fight in Rochester, 
although these could never allow the federal government to be their core funder, or in communities not already organized, seek out local leadership to initiate the process of building a resident organization. You see that? Let's go back and reread that. It says, in practice, this would mean that the federal sponsor for community action, the Office of Economic Opportunity, should bypass city halls and either fund existing militant organizations such as Fight in Rochester or in communities not already organized, seek out local leadership to initiate the process of building a resident organization. So what they were saying here. Uh, And it says, although these could never allow the federal government to be their core funder, they still were looking for money from the government to organize against the government. You see how that never works. So there's people who actually trained under Alinsky that have given lectures about some of this stuff. That his answer a lot of times to fighting government was to find a politician who would ally with them. So someone in government to help them fight government. And this is why I have just taken the stance over the last uh, few years, especially since Donald Trump, who yeah, I kind of assumed what would happen would happen, not to the level it did. Uh, but he was our last hope, as far as I was concerned, to try to seize the day on things like border security and some of the other issues that he brought up during the 2015-2016 campaign. And so this is why I am post-political. And I have no interest whatsoever in dealing with anyone who is in elected office. I've had a few people reach out who are in elected office, and I just have no interest in speaking to them whatsoever. Until one of them comes to me, uh, at least with draft bills that will never get passed, but that they plan on trying to introduce or at least get out in the public, showing me how they're going to stop central bank digital currency, universal basic income, technocracy in general, transhumanism in general, uh, end the funding to companies owned by Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, and others, and reduce the size of the police state by 100%. I, I have no interest in talking to them. What, what is a politician going to do for me? Even if a politician was on Twitter uh, railing against uh, COVID overreach, but they don't have the balls to tell you that the whole thing was a theater production, live action role play, I have no interest in speaking to them. I really don't care. I mean, there, there's a lot of politicians I know, and some of you that follow me on Twitter, and even over at pain.tv. Uh, slash gold, you get kind of rope back into it. I'm not criticizing you. Some people like to play around in the WWE wrestling, but uh, I won't have them on. I will not have elected officials on, and I'm not interested in anyone who's running for office because they're going to come on here and they're going to tell me, you know, I'm going to fight uh, to make sure there's no tax increase and the budget stays capped and a 10% growth rate each year, blah, blah, blah. I what, what is that going to do for me? First off, what they're talking about has no effect on technocratic transhumanism or the future of the prison planet matrix we live in. So I'm just not interested in it. It's it's uh, ridiculous to me. Uh, and, and, and now you see here Alinsky holding out his hand, trying to get money from the federal government to fund these militant organizations in the inner cities, and now their backer is going to be the federal government? I mean, come on, folks. That's what I told you. He's very hypocritical. Uh, and, and, and he contradicts himself. We're fighting the man. Let's get money from the man. Goes on to say amendments to OEO funding in the summer of 1965 ruled out any such, quote, creative federalism, end quote. 
These gave city halls the right to select the official community action agency, CAA, for their community and reserve two-thirds of the CAA boards for business representative and elected officials. There was no prospect of a federal mandate favoring Alinsky's organizing model. The one-year OEO grant for the program at Syracuse that had hired Alinsky was not renewed when the program Cheney's began organizing residents against city agencies. The mayor withdrew cooperation. And, um, folks, when, when I was active in the city of New Haven, you know, organizing from a conservative standpoint, we actually went to battle with a community action agency, a CAA, in the city of New Haven. And one of the things that these folks did is they would be in charge of administering energy assistance. Okay, so say with oil prices real high right now. Back then, we were dealing with the 07, 08 housing collapse. So oil prices were getting real high. So you could apply. It was a form of welfare. You could apply for assistance with your home heating oil electricity, things of that nature. It was basically like a social worker type agency and they would hand out government freebies. And so this agency actually had a software that was generating fake social security numbers for illegal aliens. And so what happened was there were several young, very um, intelligent black women who worked inside that agency who came to me because I was kind of a Saul Linsky (laughs) of New Haven through a friend of mine, through a mutual friend. And they had proof that the community action agency president was making them do this. And they were upset because their grandmothers were being rejected for energy assistance Uh, Because let's say their social security payments were a dollar too high every year, yet they were falsifying social security numbers to give out energy assistance, not only to illegal aliens directly, but to slumlords that were tied into the political power in the city of New Haven. And so the slumlords, let's say they owned a slum house where they had 20 illegal alien uh, Mexicans living in, this was very common in New Haven, uh, in an area called Fair Haven, and they would have 20 illegal aliens that worked at uh, 10 different Dunkin' Donuts restaurants that they own. There was a guy like this. And so they would have each illegal alien apply for energy assistance using a different social security number for each illegal alien. And let's say they were getting a stipend of, like, say, $100 a month. Each one of them would get $100 a month for that one property, which would be like $2,000. And then the slumlord that owned it would pocket 1000 and let them keep 1000 And so we went undercover in the community action agency. Actually, this was before I was really known publicly at the time in New Haven. Like, people didn't recognize my face. I was on the radio a lot. I actually posed undercover as a New York Times uh, reporter, and I planted a story uh, in another newspaper that someone was on to the community action agency for what they were doing. And then I called up as a New York Times reporter, talked to the president and said, listen, I sympathize with you. I'd like to come in and write a story. So I went in there and I sat down with him and his assistant and I recorded the entire 
conversation with him and got him on the record talking about what they do. And then I went and I played that on the conservative talk radio station, Super Talk 960 WLI, along with the host, Jerry Christopher. And we blew them out of the water. And we ended up forcing an investigation by uh, some state congressional committee. I forget what it was at the time. And so when this went on, we then uh, were rolled out similar to what Andrew Breitbart used to do when he did the Acorn project with James O'Keefe before O'Keefe had Project Veritas. We were doing similar stuff in New Haven. So as they rolled it out, what we did was we were ready to go the next day on the radio. So they denied it in this congressional committee. And then the next day we had the three black girls from the community action agency inside of the radio station. We held a mock trial and we reviewed all their evidence live on air. It was pretty amazing stuff, ladies and gentlemen. But a lot of this I had pulled uh, some of these tactics from my studies on Saul Linsky. It's all coming back to me now, folks. I'm 41. We talk about so much stuff here. I can't remember everything, ladies and gentlemen. And that's why I forgot, because I can't remember. It's time for a short break. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. Folks, Let's go, um, I'm going to show you here on this Wikipedia article for those of you over at pain.tv slash gold on the video side. And for those of you looking for episode 115, I apologize. I had an issue with the computer that I do the video editing on. I've got a couple different computers. And so we had to get that fixed. And I had to spend uh, some additional money I wasn't planning on. Uh, The last four or five months that I've been building this podcast, I'm basically in startup mode, uh, just like starting any business. And so I don't have a lot of cash flow uh, coming in here. And obviously we had baby William, we had to transfer to the hospital. So we have extra bills for that, you know, the deductibles on my wife's insurance. And so all of a sudden now with Christmas, and I really did, uh, we decided to do a reduced Christmas this year. We're not spending all kinds of money. Uh, because at the same time, I've got to get back to this year saving to try to end up getting a little homestead going. So this computer went down, and I ended up having to order some parts. So I'll have that back out. I think episode 114 should be up, and then we should have 115 and 115, uh, 16 up tonight and tomorrow. So that should be fixed. Uh, might as well throw it in there, folks. If you'd like to leave a donation, you can at donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. If you'd like to do that and help out, few people have done so. You can leave a weekly, a monthly, an annual donation. If you could do that, folks, we'd really appreciate it. Eventually, I'm going to push that a little harder because one of the models uh, to fund independent media is uh, donations. All right, so you have subscriptions, which you could do over at pain.tv slash gold, and we have another site we're working on, which we'll announce uh, in the coming months. 
And then you can leave a donation at donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. And then there's the advertisements, which play on the public side. And then there's sponsorships, which I'm in the process of working on now. Other than that, you really can have merchandise and then, you know, charge speaker fees if you go speak somewhere live, which eventually I want to get to, but I've obviously got to get bigger before we start going down that path. But uh, over here, uh, for the video audience at pain.tv slash gold, it's going to get into uh, political uh, contentions. And we're going to eventually go through this because I, I want to go through all this Wikipedia summary before I get into the articles in depth and the documentaries. I want to just take a wide, wide look at Saul Linsky, his whole life, everything, and start to see how he ties into everything else that we've been talking about here. But I'm not going to cover this tonight. This is uh, communism and anti-communism. Then we have the Black Power Movement, the Student New Left. Okay, so we're going to get into each of those. Uh, Right now, I want to get into his later life, uh, because we just talked about his early life. We talked about sort of his body of work as an organizer. Now we're going to talk about his later life. And then before we uh, wrap up tonight, I'm going to get into the 13 Rules. Uh, for radicals, and leave you with that, something to think about before we come back tomorrow for episode 117. So this is the myth of Saul Alinsky criticism. In the summer of 1967, in an article in Dissent, Frank Reisman summarized a broader left-wing case against Alinsky, seeking to explode, quote, the myth of Saul Alinsky, end quote, Reisman argued that rather than politicize an area, Alinsky's organizational efforts simply directed people, quote, into kind of a dead-end local activism, end quote. Alinsky's opposition to large programs, broad goals, and ideology confused even those who participated in the local organizations because they find no context for their action. As a result, confined to what might be secured by purely local initiative, they achieved at best, quote, a better ghetto, end quote. And see, that's what I was talking about earlier, as he was just driving them into an eternal life of poverty, of slavery. Goes on to say, Reisman insisted that it was for, quote, the organizer strategist intellectual, end quote, to, quote, provide the connections, the larger view that will lead to the development of a movement, end quote, but adding, quote, this is not to suggest that the larger view should be imposed upon the local group, end quote. The new left themselves seemed unable to strike the necessary balance as they appeared to drift in events of the 1960s, failing above all to stop the war in Vietnam. Gitlin suggests that the SDS constructed their larger view, quote, on the cheap, end quote. Far from reconciling neighborhood agendas, welfare, rent, police harassment, garbage pickup, with radical ambition, their reheated revolutionary dogma prepared a, quote, left exit, end quote, from community organizing, something that most new left groups had affected by 1970. All right. And so this is one of the reasons why, uh, and I'm, I'm going to do a series of shows on jury nullification, which I discussed here with Legal Man of the podcast, The Quash. But one of the reasons why I'm not jumping headfirst into this, 
Uh, I'm still doing research on it and talking to some other audience members that reached out that want to have some additional shows on this. I I just don't want to set folks. I don't want to be responsible for setting people into motion on something that is going to just waste their time. All right. And, And since I see the larger picture Uh, being central bank digital currency, being technocracy in general, being transhumanism, I feel like if I try to use my voice and efforts to kick people into high gear to organize something or attempt to organize something that is just going to turn out to be a waste of their time, then I would be perceived as some sort of a charlatan or someone who suffers from naivete. And I I don't want to do that. All right. Right now, I am in an educating and motivating mode. All right. I never wanted to be a teacher. But Maria Albanese, co-host of the Thomas Paine Podcast and a good friend of mine, she told me, you are a great teacher. So go out there and teach and educate folks, inspire folks to want to learn more about what's actually happening. And then many of you over the last 116 episodes have written reviews and you've said, this is like a master class in technocracy, in what's really happening in our real history. So I've embraced that role, okay, as a teacher, as an educator. And then I add in as a motivator to try to get you to think about how you're going to not just survive, but thrive in this system or figure out how you can exit the system, or at least in part, uh, hold on to some human autonomy, some freedom, some liberty outside of the system. So I don't want to kick you into high gear and waste your time because I see that the problems are so much larger than even uh, the federal level. This thing is global. So until I can figure out, other than trying to push people towards exiting densely populated areas and starting to congregate with like-minded folks, start thinking about building a homestead or putting people together in smaller communities, uh, until I can figure out something above and beyond that that I think is actually going to be effective, other than continuing to educate yourself and others and talk about your goals and your solutions, then I, I don't want to waste your time and start to say, hey, go do this or go do that. And before you know it, you're just on Facebook setting up a group and talking about nonsense. So that's kind of what they're accusing Alinsky of doing here, which I mentioned to you. Was he just naive uh, or was he an opportunity, opportunist who was really just a grifter? All right, it goes on to say, Alinsky's dismissal of Reisman as, quote, a little whining Pekingese, end quote, as someone he, quote, refused to debate with, end quote, might suggest that Alinsky was sensitive to the charge that the communities he helped organize were led into a political cul-de-sac. In 1964, he and Hoffman had agreed that the Woodlawn organization was, quote, stymied, end quote. It staggered in the face of deteriorating housing, chronic unemployment, and bad schools in a political environment that was unfriendly uh, to hostile. Unless they did something, TWL, quote, would go down, end quote. Alinsky was not a community organizing purist. He saw the possibility of an electoral breakout. 
of Woodlawn being uh, Woodlawn helping mount a challenge to the incumbent in the 1966 Democrat Party primary for the second congressional district. But Brazier, his preferred candidate, would not run, and the community organization was fearful for its political tax-exempt status. In the end, Daly's political machine had little difficulty in rolling over the additional support galvanized for the reform-minded state legislator Abner Mixfa. All right, and so I got involved with political campaigns back in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and in the state of Connecticut in general, actually ran some campaigns. And in the end, I mean, I learned a lot, but folks, it was banging my head against the wall. I, I encouraged certain people to run and then came in and I was chief strategist on their campaigns and I helped them put campaigns together. And these folks were running as Republicans and they had no support of the state Republican Party because we were seen as too extreme, meaning we weren't part of the establishment. And so we uncovered a lot and figured out that there was political horse trading going on. And so a particular Republican senator named Len Fasano was allowed to hold his seat, his state Senate seat, as long as they didn't run a real challenger as a Republican against the incumbent and entrenched a Democrat congressman in that same district, his name was Steve Fontana, and so I ran an older woman, uh, the late Veronica Cavella, a good friend of mine, and we beat him up with Alinsky tactics, and we could not get any support from the local Republican town committee, and then we found out why, because it was all fixed, it was all rigged, and so I, I quickly pulled out of the political game and realized that fighting this stuff from inside the system was a complete and total waste of time. Complete and total waste of time. Because what happens is the base of supporters you build up around you they end up getting tired very quickly and they say why don't we start working with the republicans and i said well then we have to adopt all of the corrupt useless policies that they're involved with folks all right and so that that's what happens that's what happens and so i pulled out of the political side of things and continued to fight from the outside using radio doing organizing and trying to spark uh, events to occur and using the media as my outlet uh, painting me as some kind of extremist to get the message out to a wider group of people and tried to change the culture instead of trying to change the politics. All right, this is a Playboy interview. It was a measure of his national celebrity that in March 1972, having, quote, elevated the art of the magazine interview, end quote, with leaders such as Fidel Castro, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X, Playboy magazine published a 24,000-word interview with Alinsky. And there you go, elevated the art of the magazine interview. And that's where I got that from. It was using the media to my favor. They wanted me to be a villain. I would be a villain, and I would get press coverage, and then I could hammer home all the points I wanted to make on the issues that I was concerned with. goes on to say, Alinsky was introduced as, quote, a bis, uh bespectacled, conservatively dressed community organizer who looks like an accountant and talks like a stevedore, end quote, a figure, quote, hated and feared, end quote, according to the New York Times, quote, in high places from coast to coast, end quote, and acknowledged by William F. Buckley 
quote, a bitter ideological foe, end quote, as, quote, very close to organizational genius, end quote. And so eventually we'll look at a interview between William F. Buckley Jr. and Saul Alinsky. Uh, leveling against him the charges of the new left, the interview effectively invited Alinsky to summarize the lessons he had drawn from the new generation of activists. A revision of an earlier work, Rules for Radicals, a pragmatic primer for realistic radicals all right ladies and gentlemen a few more of these when we come back and then i'll show you those 13 rules because that's going to be the basis for the conversation over the next few episodes ladies and gentlemen i'm going to disappear for just a few seconds my name is dustin gold this is the dustin gold standard and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. 